Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. We're continuing a series of talks on the Old Testament books of Kings. This talk covers 1 Kings 8 through 10. The glorious grand opening of the temple was surely the high point of King Solomon's reign, but soon there appeared disturbing signs that not all was well in the moral and spiritual fabric of his kingdom. Here is Solomon, who got started so well. He started so strong and finished so weakly. What happened? In 1 Kings chapter 8, we've got the the temple, the day of the dedication of the temple. And it has been built, and we've got a thorough description of everything that was going on. The, the, uh, the, high, the, the temple was open. They, they brought the Ark of the Covenant up from Zion and brought it out to the new temple, which was outside of Zion on the hill just up above that was overlooking the hill of Zion. And they brought the ark out from where it had been, from its tent that David had set up for it. And they brought it into the temple and placed it according to the procedures that were patterned after the instructions that Moses gave in the book of Exodus. Although they had to adapt those procedures because Moses did not actually give a set of procedures for moving the ark into the holy of holies of a temple. So they had to adapt that from the procedures. And when they did, you know, they brought it and they they had the poles that they carried the ark with, had it, and the, the poles were sticking out of the holy place. I don't know why they, well, all of these fine measurements and all of this, and they still hadn't figured out that the, what they had didn't quite fit. And so it was remarked by the writer of Kings, citing the sources that he had, which were eyewitness sources, that the poles of the ark were just, uh, were put that way and they were kept that way. That's the meaning of the phrase, and they are that way to this day. What the writer of Kings is doing is he is citing his historical source, which is an eyewitness source, because, of course, by the time that the book of First Kings and Second Kings were written, the, the temple no longer existed, and the ark was gone. So this eyewitness testimony is what he's citing. He is quoting his source. They are that way to this day. They, in other words, they just left them that way. They didn't try to fix it. <laughs> they just said, praise the Lord, it is what it is. That's blessed be the name of the Lord. We're not going to try to alter anything more than that. We've, we've got our, so they've got that. And when that took place, and the ark went into the holy place, and the priests were getting ready to send up their incense and do the things that they do in the, in the holy place, the whole building began to fill up with a mysterious cloud. And the cloud simply did not obscure their vision. 
it was a heavy cloud that pressed down its weight upon the occupants. And so it says that the priests could not stand to do their service. It doesn't mean that they couldn't tolerate being in the, in the room so that they couldn't perform their service. It means they could not stand up. The cloud weighed them down. This was not a cloud of gas. This was not a cloud of carbon monoxide that was filling the room. I don't know what kind of theories you may have heard on the Discovery Channel. This was not a cloud of water vapor. This was the Shekinah of the Lord God Almighty. The same cloud that led them in the wilderness. The same cloud that filled the original tabernacle in the wilderness. Now filling this building. With God doing so, endorsing this building. Endorsing this project. Endorse it. Despite any faults and failures of those who were producing it, God, don't misunderstand what's going on here. This is not, this is God's grace at work. If there's anything incomplete, and as far as man was concerned, we have done everything that we can do. You know what? As when man does everything that he can do, we have still done an incomplete job in terms of pleasing God. When man has done everything that he can do, all that we have been told to do, to the best of our ability, is it still going to be faulty? Be honest. Yes. Absolutely. But God's grace takes that obedience which is given even when it's not complete, even when it's faulty, even when there are mistakes that are made, God takes the obedience that is offered to Him in faith and receives it as the whole. Receives it as complete obedience. That is grace. God takes the part and says it's the whole. We, we say, I surrender all. And we do so in good faith. But we still do so incompletely. We don't even know all of ourselves. Grace. God takes the part and says, that's the whole. That's God's grace. And God in His grace came and endorsed this building. And so we see Solomon... Verse 12 of chapter 8 says, The Lord has said that He would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. That was a remark that Solomon made in the midst of all of this. Then we see a digest of the speech that Solomon made to the people. He turned to the congregation gathered there and he made a speech. He made... You could say he preached a sermon. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. Now look at the last part of verse, uh, that verse 16. But I have chosen David, 
to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build a temple, but your son, who is your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build a temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded, David my father. And now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark, which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of Egypt. (coughs) And then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly and spread his hands toward heaven. Okay, I want you to notice the posture here. In this particular case of public prayer, Solomon is not kneeling. He is standing. Part of the reason is this is a public prayer. And this is a prayer that he is offering on behalf of the entire congregation. And this is a model for public prayer, by the way. Because a public prayer, a publicly offered prayer, needs to gather together the prayers not just of the individual praying, but the prayers of all of those gathered and pray on the behalf of all of those gathered. It is a kind of intercessory prayer. But it is a, also a participatory prayer in which all of those who are involved and standing there with the one who is saying the prayer can participate and can say amen to that prayer. By which, in which case the amen means I agree with that prayer. I am standing in agreement with it. That prayer voices the prayer of my heart and I can say amen. So Solomon is praying, not not just on his own behalf, but he is standing as the representative of his people, praying now before the temple. Verse 23, he says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Verse 24, you have kept your promise. Verse 25, Now, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him. Now, is that out of order? No. Lord, you've kept your promise. Now I pray, keep your promise. Is that redundant? No. Because at any one time in this There's only going to be one era in which God fulfills all of his promises, and that is at the end of the age. All of the promises that God makes to us are amen in him, but yet we live out our lives in space and time. We can't receive the whole of God's promise at any one time. And so God gives us a promise, and we receive that promise, but that doesn't mean we've received all of it. Basically, David is, or Solomon is praying, Lord, you made a promise. You've kept your promise to this point. It's kind of like in the hymn, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I am come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. I've gotten this far. Lord, you've brought us this far. You've fulfilled this promise to us up to this point. You have fulfilled, you have given us everything that we can hold up till now. 
Lord, continue to be faithful to keep your promise. Verse 27. Now we get to the theological part. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I've built. So important. Such an important point to understand. Verse 20. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. What is going on here? What is Solomon doing with this prayer? He is dedicating this temple as a locus for prayer. When we pray, now remember, we are under a covenant of law and under a covenant in which everything that God is giving, all of the blessings of God and all of the approach of God to man is an external one. It is through offerings and sacrifices. All of these things are external. Jesus said, when he was talking to the Samaritan woman, there will come a day when you will not say, let us go to this place and worship. There will come a day when those, God is spirit, and there will come a day when those who worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He said, there will come a day. We are living in that day now. They were not living in that day then. And in that day then, there needed to be a place where God met people. And that place was going to be this temple. Verse 30, hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. That is, makes a very important distinction. Solomon said, let's not misunderstand. This is the place where we're focusing our attention on the name of the Lord. But don't let anybody make the mistake of thinking God actually lives in this building. That this is God's home. No. His dwelling place is in heaven. He's a lot bigger than this place. And then he begins to go through and recite a list of examples of kinds of things that God would hear. And they all come from the covenant. They all come basically from the covenant of uh, blessings and curses that is in the book of Deuteronomy. When a man wrongs his neighbor, is required to take an oath before your altar in this temple, hear from heaven and act. 
when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned, when they, and when they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and make suppl- supplication to you in this temple, hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. When the, heaven, <coughs> excuse me, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place, confess your name, turn from their sin, hear from heaven, the sin, forgive the sin of your servants, teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. Each one, things like this coming on. It moves on down. Look at verse 46, chapter 8. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. That right there is the clearest statement of the fact of sin that shows up in the Old Testament until the prophets. Particularly until the prophet Jeremiah. And it was Solomon who distilled that thought first. When they sin against you, for there is no one who doesn't sin. Solomon is not looking at these things with rosy colored glasses. He said, you know, because when you're in the middle of all of this, you're in the revival and everybody's feeling good about God and everybody's praising the Lord and everybody's looking so holy and so religious and we're all there and we're all feeling, you know, very righteous and every, all of that and Solomon's up there praying and then he says, well, when somebody sins against this, and finally when he says, when someone sins and God lets get on us, no one doesn't sin. There is no one who does not sin. When they sin against you, and they are going to do it, and you become angry with them, and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive, to his own land, far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors, and say, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies, verse 49, then from heaven your dwelling place hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all of the offenses they've committed against you. Cause their conquerors to show them mercy. You think these words might have been written possibly as an encouragement to people who now were in the mess that Solomon prayed about centuries before. When Solomon, verse 54, when Solomon finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling. Notice this. He started. Did you see that? Now, this is why I pointed out. He started out. His posture was what? Standing. By the time he finishes this prayer, he is on his knees. And he stood... And he blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. Statement was made just like that in the book of Joshua. Not one, where in the book of Joshua, toward the end of the book, not one of all the good promises which the Lord God had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. And it's like Joshua is, or Solomon is quoting Joshua here. Not one word he's failed has, of all the good promises that he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways, to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations. 
May these words of mine which I prayed before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as it is this time. And then... Chapter 9, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, verse 2, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, you know that prayer you prayed? I heard. My eyes and my heart will always be at that place. And as for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father. Verse 6, but if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel from the land I've given them and I will reject this temple that I have consecrated for my name. And though this, verse 8, though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer because they have forsaken the Lord their God. Way, whoa, <laughs> that's kind of a downer, <laughs> isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like God knows what's going to happen next, huh? Oh, let's see, we went over that uh, one time. Uh, it's about, I think it's a 12th year. Is what it says. I think it actually says it was in Solomon's 12th year. Uh, meanwhile, he's doing all of these other building projects and getting his own palace and, and administrative buildings and all of that taken care of, too. So you've got all of this stuff going on, all these building projects. But the main thing is right now, the focus here is the temple, and everybody feels good, and everybody feels holy, and we've had revival, and God is good, and and uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it and, and all of that good stuff. And then the next several chapters tells us about the glory of Solomon. We've gotten chapter 10, the visit of the Queen of Sheba, which I would love to spend a whole lot more time with. And I'm not going to do it because we've got to move. Seems like the Queen of Sheba was the only woman in the region whom Solomon did not marry, by the way. Uh, which is an interesting thing because... She seems by far the most interesting woman in the entire region. Probably Solomon thought so. There are a lot of uh, rumors <laughs> about all of that. But they didn't make it into the Bible. And by the way, also you had uh, Solomon in the, in the description at the end of chapter 10 of Solomon's splendor. You've got, you have the kings of the earth and the queens of the earth now with Sheba. Coming in. And by the way, the archaeologists have, have been looking for, and they think they may have found the kingdom of, uh, of Sheba uh, on, in southwestern Arabia. And uh, there's a lot of discussion of a number of things which are still mysterious and still not really known here. Speaks of 
Solomon had, gold, Solomon had a gold supply from Ophir. Nobody knows where Ophir was. And there are a lot of theories of it. I'll tell you one that you may not have heard. Or, and one theory is that the gold of Ophir came from the continent of South America. And you have that theory coming up with the journeys of Thor Heyerdahl on his papyrus raft Contiki and his transatlantic journey. A journey of a sailing ship, of a Phoenician-style sailing ship from that era. If it were to cross, if it were to make, uh, make its traverse all the way through the Mediterranean and then across the Atlantic Ocean and back, it would be about a three-year trip. That's what the description is of the journeys of Solomon's ships to Ophir. They brought gold from a place that nobody, you know, it was a gold supply that nobody else had. That is the, that is the important thing. Nobody else had access to this gold supply that Solomon had that filled his treasury. And gold became so plentiful. It said, nobody used silver. It wasn't worth anything. You talk about inflation. <laughs> nobody used silver. It wasn't worth anything. Solomon, made, one of the things that came up is Solomon made these great shields of gold. He had a company, a, a shield, equip, uh, shields for a... Uh, a company of men, we don't know exact. you know, just a standard unit of operation in the Israelite armor, army, had made up with gold armor, with gold shields. Not just the little buckler shields that, that you'd hold, you know, the little round shields that uh, a swordsman would hold. These would be the great body shields <coughs> that your spear phalanx would, would be carrying into battle with them. And they would be made of wood and then hammered gold, uh, sheeting it. It was, it was not for battle. It was purely for ceremonial purposes. To show the glory and the splendor of all of this. God is fulfilling His promise to Solomon. I'll give you wisdom. And Solomon used his wisdom. And his wisdom was very attractive to the nations of the world. And through it, he became a tremendous witness of the one God of Israel to all of the nations of the world. However, chapter 11, verse 1, King Solomon, however loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites. Okay, just in case you misunderstand the point here. The Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. No, it's not going to happen to me. I'm Solomon. I'm wise. I think Solomon actually said that. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I believe it was Solomon who said that. He would know. Yeah. Maybe it was just the 
<laughs> Maybe just the first hundred. <sighs> Lest you... Now, all of these, all of these, of course, are women. Mo, I mean, it, it started... It, it was... It, there was a political angle to all of this, of course. <clears throat> but lest you misunderstand, the writer lets us know something. This is very significant. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He got them, and he wanted to keep them. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. These were women that he married who were not of royal birth and therefore could not have actually the status of wife. But he had a covenant relationship with them that was not, and he would have to have divorced them in order to put them away, just like a regular wife. So he married them, but they were not of royal status, and so they couldn't actually be on the level of wives. That's, so he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. <laughs> Verse 4. Now, and this is particular. This is the... This very acute statement here. This is, this is not something that happened overnight. Solomon's heart was not turned away from God overnight. Solomon, it was an imperceptible thing to him. I don't think Solomon ever saw it coming. I don't think he ever felt it happening. He didn't regard that as a fault. Now, notice something. I want you to think about something. Solomon's father was David. He had how many wives? <coughs> Five wives. And I think he had ten concubines. Something like that. All of them were Israelite women. David did not, strictly speaking, except with the affair with Bathsheba, break the law of God. The law of God did not prohibit, as such, multiple marriage. We're not going to talk about that right now. We're just, that's, I'm just going to put that down. The law of God did not prohibit multiple marriage. David did not, strictly speaking, break the law except that the law warned those who became king not to multiply wives for themselves. It also said, don't multiply horses for yourselves. It said, In other words, the whole idea is don't get on a power gig. So you think that you've got to fortify your life with a lots of wives and lots of... Con you don't think you have to do that. Before that, in the history of Israel, Gideon... Although he refused a crown, took on himself a lot of the perks of royalty, including multiplying wives for himself, wives and concubines. And his, after he died, whatever he had there was overthrown by someone who styled himself Abimelech, son of a king. It was, an, it was Gideon's illegitimate son. So we've got history like that. We've got this going on, this mindset, this allowance of this Canaanite, this pagan, this secular mindset that David had. Solomon witnessed this. And as a matter of fact, Solomon 
To some extent, Solomon might have even justified it to the extent of saying that if it had not been for David's habit of doing this, Solomon would not have ever been born. It is very easy to mistake the grace of God for his primary plan for a person's life. God is very gracious to us and gives us grace which redeems our sins and redeems us from our sins and redeems our failures and turns our failures into successes. But we must not mistake that is the grace of God. That is not our righteousness. That is not a blessing on our righteousness. It is His forgiveness of our failure. Solomon, however, didn't analyze it that way. And David, his father, having opened the door to multiple marriages, and Solomon having already opened the door to a marriage outside of his race by before, to be sure, before really making a full consecration of his life to the Lord, but using the smarts that the Lord had already just given him made this alliance with Pharaoh by marrying his, the Pharaoh's daughter. So Solomon had opened the door to marrying outside of the nation. <coughs> there was before when Solomon did that, and the mention of that earlier in 1 Kings, there wasn't any condemnation of that. It's kind of almost kind of accepted, kind of, we can understand where you're going, coming from, Saul. By this time, the pattern is set. The precedent has set. This is the danger of setting a precedent that is outside of the Word of God. This is the point I'm trying to make. There is a danger to setting a precedent in your life, permitting things that may be in the overall grace of God not strictly speaking prohibited but then opening the door to prohibited things because we are free in Christ what would be a good example what do you think might be a good example <laughs> okay. Uh, I can cite what has been cited alcohol, uh, where it's it's not a problem for you as adults, yet it can happen that it becomes a problem, or some other dependency becomes a problem for air. Let me let me cite one that's very directly connected to the text: <clears throat> marrying an unbeliever. In the Old Testament, God's people were prohibited from marrying outside of the covenant nation. In the New Testament, that prohibition is brought forward into the new covenant. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And yet there's a lot of missionary dating that's going on out there among our young people. God's never authorized that. It is 
easy to give your heart to someone that is outside of God's salvation. And it's easy to rationalize that for lots of reasons. And it's easy to say, and here's a dangerous thing. Sometimes it works. Sometimes, usually, most often, it is a woman who marries a lost man. Sometimes it is the other way around. And occasionally, God is gracious and answers prayers. And that one who was married in a, in a heart with a heart of unbelief toward the Lord actually comes to faith through the witness of the one that he is married. That has happened. That is not the rule. That is the exception. What happens, seems to happen here in the Old Testament is, I mean, Solomon perfected the process with a thousand wives or concubines. But his first exposure was to the faith of his father. Yes. When his heirs came along, their first exposure was to some other faith. That's right. And so it, now it's like, even though it's a son, if you're on the mission field, it's like starting out with someone who knows nothing about God. Even though their father was uh, a man who started in a walk of faith. What the parents permit for themselves in moderation, the children will often take to an excess. I've seen it happen in, in many of my relationships with others in the campus community. Very, very, very same thing. And look at verse 4. Look at the gradual nature of this. As Solomon grew old, his wife turned his heart to other gods. Because of his affection for them, and I believe that that was real affection, David was a man... David was doomed, romantically speaking, really from the beginning. Solomon, sab uh, King Saul, his father-in-law, sabotaged David for having any decent, righteous re relationship with the opposite sex. The f I believe that really the only woman that David loved in all of his life was the one woman who would never, who could never ever reciprocate, and that was the daughter of Saul. And so David was, his father-in-law sabotaged all of that from the beginning. I won't go over all of that story, but it's, that's, a, that's a, a saga in its own right. But my point on, on that is that David, I believe, and I can see all the way through David's life, there is this, this longing for connection, this longing for intimacy. He had an intimate friend in Jonathan. And when he lost Jonathan, there was no one else that he really had any connection with. And so he was always looking for one. And so he, he began the process of collecting wives. 
his relationship with Solomon's mother was such a collection, such an attempt to gain some connection, some intimacy in his life. Doing so in in an illegitimate and sinful way. But it illustrated the hunger. I believe that Solomon modeled that hunger. I believe that Solomon craved to fill what his father never could fill. And he tried it with volume. (laughs) And he tried it. And I believe he really did. I think his heart, I think he really did have an affection and heart for his wives. The writer of Kings says so. His heart went after God. And it's because his wives turned them. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. David never ever committed the sin of going after other gods. Solomon began, because first it began with tolerating his first wife's religious preferences and accommodating that. No, no, you're not required to, to convert to our faith in in the Lord God, so you can go on. You can you can just continue to worship your Egyptian. You can worship Isis or whoever. We'll have a little shrine for you here. Well, as David began to multiply wives, each one of them had to have a shrine to her own God. And as Solomon began tolerating it, and then he said, "Well, why don't you come visit? Why don't you see what we do?" And Solomon, being intellectually curious, wanted to go into that and began to see, began to appreciate. The, the nuances of others. It's not all like, you know, it was just one of these comparative religion things. And his mind and heart began corrupt to be corrupted away from the purity of his faith in the one God of Israel. And Solomon, in his heart of hearts, began to question whether Jehovah was really the only God that was out there. That's the point of all of this. He never outwardly departed from the faith but his heart began wondering whether this is all that there is and the wisdom that God gave him became a snare verse 6 and he actually started following Ashtoreth the god of the Sidonians and Molech the detestable god of the Ammonites No evidence that Solomon ever practiced child sacrifice. That's not the point. The point is, if you put a pinch of incense on the altar, it's only a matter of time. Because there's not a significance. There's not a significant qualitative difference between putting a pinch of incense on the altar and going wholeheartedly into the observance. It's only a matter of quantity. Verse 6, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. And on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, did the same thing for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The same Solomon who had the temple built in Jerusalem on the on just on the north face of Mount Zion comes on in and says, okay, I'll make you, you, you ladies a high place for your gods. 
doesn't matter that these gods are absolutely detestable. They're not just other gods. They are detestable gods. They're the gods when God looks. They're, they're the gods who, when God looks at the real God, looks at their altars, becomes sick. And Solomon built high places for them. Verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon. You think? Because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. That is emphasized. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon didn't keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, well... Since this is your attitude and you haven't kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Said similar words to Saul. You remember? First Samuel. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but I will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And then the next, the rest of the chapter is taken up with the... Solomon spent the first half of that chapter acquiring wives spent the rest of that chapter acquiring enemies. Lord gave it to him. You've acquired for yourself wives. I'm going to add you some enemies. Both outside, so you're going to have pressure from the north. You're going to have pressure from the south. And you're going to have pressure from within. And you're going to have to start using some of these horses and chariots and armies and, and fortified places that you have made for yourself and built for yourself in order to be secure. Let's test that. Let's test your security system. You have been given peace. I have given you peace all around you. But now you've departed from me. So you're not going to, your enemies that I have made to be at peace with you, they're not going to be at peace with you anymore. They're going to start aggravating you. They're going to start annoying you. We don't have open warfare, but we've got constant border raids going on from Syria in the north, from Edom in the south. The Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's hands, uh, kingdom has changed hands. They've got a new king, and he's starting to do some saber rattling. That's going to be going on. And by the way, this guy, the, your, your number one guy in running things inside the kingdom, the most competent man in your kingdom, who has risen through the meritocracy that you have set up, He's really good at what he does. His name is Jeroboam. He's an Ephraimite. You know what? He's going to become your competitor. He's going to start running against you for king. Wait a minute. There aren't elections for king. Yeah, there is. God's the one who does the voting. And God sends Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a message saying, God's appointed you to be the king of the tribes in the north. If you walk in my ways and follow me, I will establish your kingdom. And if you don't, I put you in and I can take you out. And so we begin a pattern that we're going to see repeated 
just the beginnings of a pattern that's going to be repeated throughout Kings. So let's just conclude with our reminder of a basic principle. God is God. And we're not. You've been listening to the third of eight talks on the book of 1 Kings. Join us next time to hear the most surprising, indeed, shocking thing that the Bible has to say about King Solomon. Until then, I'm Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.